0: Well, before we turn back to the book of Romans, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to Malachi, which is um, the last book of the Old Testament. So just go to Matthew and put it in reverse and uh, you'll find Malachi. And I want to look particularly at Malachi chapter 3, because, as you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, we made uh, an urgent announcement regarding uh, the church's financial situation and uh, how our expenses were exceeding our uh, giving, and uh, that this was uh, unprecedented in the, in the history of our church. It's never been that way before, and so uh, this is an opportunity for us to evaluate our stewardship and uh, how we are managing God's money as a church, but also how we're managing God's money as individuals. And uh, how we can uh, maybe cut back as a church, but how also maybe we could step up as givers. And um, I sent out a follow-up letter. Uh, Hopefully, most of you got that uh, in the mail. And I had a couple question, or had a a couple people have uh, ask a question regarding something I said in that letter. And I wanted to make sure it was clear to all of us what I meant by what I said uh, in the last paragraph when I talked about. Putting God to the test, because that first sound of that, that doesn't sound right. I didn't think we were supposed to put God to the test, right? Well, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, And then here it is, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And here it is, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And so there's a couple ways that the phrase testing God is used in scripture. Most of the time it's in a negative context where testing God means we're testing his patience. We're seeing how far we can go in our evil before he acts. Well, here, this is in a positive test uh, context, testing God's provision. In other words, let's see how much we can give and see how much God will bless us as a result. And so, again, we, we should not test God's patience We should test God's provision, amen? And that's the intent of what I said in that letter, and I want to just make sure that was clear because it was a question that a number of you asked, and I thought it was a fair question, and I just wanted to make sure that you knew uh, what verse in the Bible I got that from, okay, and uh, that it is actually biblical. And so, by the way, thank you for your generosity last Sunday. We had a very generous offering, and uh, it was very encouraging but again our goal is uh, we, we can't just have one good offering and then sub, uh, then a week or, or months of subpar offerings we need to have that be every Sunday like that and so we're very uh, excited to see as we trust the Lord and test the giving capacity of our body uh, at this in this new season uh, in the life of our church and so continue to pray and uh, if you haven't listened to that message that I encourage you to listen to, why why we come to church, part eight. It's all about, um, it's an exposition of uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is uh, the best passage in all the Bible about giving and all these principles for giving. And I wanna encourage you to listen to that message or read that passage uh, just as you prayerfully consider how God might want you to increase your giving to his work here at this church. Well, having said that, let's turn back to the book of Romans the book of Romans, and we are moving into a new chapter, Romans chapter 8, and I want to read uh, verses 1 through 11. I really was tempted to read the entire chapter because it, it, it is so good and it, and it all kind of goes together, but let's just bite off the first chunk here this morning, Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. who dwells in you. Let's pray. God, I ask that your spirit, who dwells in us, would enlighten us to understand this text and enable us to apply it to our lives. I pray you'd use me as the preacher to make your word understandable and applicable and cause the hearers to be receptive and responsive to your word. We ask all of this for your honor your glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans 8 is, without a doubt, one of the best known and most beloved chapters in the Bible. Some, in fact, have called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, whether that's true or not, it certainly is a great chapter, chock full of some of the greatest truths which are near and dear uh, to the heart of every Christian, Someone described Romans 8 like this. If the Bible were a ring and Romans was the jewel in the center of that ring, then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. If you're familiar with this chapter, as we just read it, it begins with no condemnation by the wrath of God and it ends with no separation from the love of God. Verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And everywhere in between, it talks about victory over sin. And it confirms the the precious and powerful realities that believers are liberated from sin and, and are eternally secure in Christ. Us in Christ... And Christ in us, via the Holy Spirit, makes it possible for us to experience a whole new way of life. When a person repents of their sin and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, he comes to live inside of them. Specifically, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to live inside of us or to indwell us. And so this chapter is all about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is a foundational doctrine that every believer must understand if they want to enjoy all the blessings and all the benefits of life in Christ. Now, I imagine that most of you are familiar with the fact that before Christ returned to heaven, he promised his followers that he would send someone to minister to them in his place. You can turn back to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 16, where Jesus made this promise to his disciples, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And so here we're introduced to this helper, capital H, literally in the Greek, parakletos, or a paraclete, one who comes alongside to help and support. That word paraclete could also be translated comforter, encourager, strengthener, advisor, counselor, Intercessor. But the point is, the moment we become a Christian, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and serves as our invisible helper for the rest of our lives here on earth. You're probably familiar with the expression um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6 Nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? So it is this permanent, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be and do all that God wants us to be and do. Now, it should come as no surprise to us that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us be what? Holy. I mean, he's not called the Holy Spirit for nothing. But one of his primary role is to sanctify us. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor Verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he rejects us as not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Why does he give you his Holy Spirit? To help you be holy, to be sanctified. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory so, he's describing the sanctification process or becoming more conformed to the image of Christ, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so, the Bible makes it clear that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy, to sanctify us. And so, it's only appropriate for Paul to introduce the subject of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit at this point in his letter to the believers. Uh, in Rome, as he was addressing the topic of what are we in the middle of? Chapter six, seven, and eight are all about what? Sanctification. If you didn't remember that, you've got that little outline there. Uh, you could pull out the the roadmap to Romans, and it'll show you that we are in a section all talking all about sanctification, or the spiritual growth process of every Christian. And so he introduces this this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. S. Lewis Johnson, who is now with the Lord, was the pastor of Believer's Chapel up in the Houston, or assuming in the, Dallas-Fort Worth area, a long professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, a fabulous expositor, says this, "...it is the Holy Spirit who supplies the dynamic for the new life created in believers by the new birth. Just as faith in Christ's work is indispensable for our justification, so faith in the power of the Spirit is indispensable for our sanctification." John Stott said it this way, quote, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life that is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. So you can't understand the Christian life, let alone live the Christian life, if you don't understand the vital role that the Holy Spirit spirit plays in your life and Paul even took it one step further here not only is it impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you then you're not even a Christian and he says that in verse 9 however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of God he does not belong the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him Now, up to this point in Romans, the Holy Spirit has been conspicuously absent. Paul has only made reference to the Spirit four times. Chapter 1, verse 4, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Chapter 2, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Chapter five, verse five, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then chapter seven, verse six, but now we have been released from the law, which having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So seven long chapters, he only mentions the Holy Spirit four times. In this one chapter, he mentions the Holy Spirit some 20 times, more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. That should tip us off that that is the subject of chapter eight. And indeed it's true, the Holy Holy Spirit is the dominant theme of this chapter. This chapter is all about the Holy Spirit and what he makes possible for those who are in Christ. And primarily, he makes it possible for us to have victory over remaining or indwelling sin. And you may recall from a few weeks ago, Paul concluded chapter 7 by honestly confessing his own personal struggle with ongoing sin or indwelling sin. and how frustrating and futile it can feel at times to, to measure up to God's standard as expressed in the law in our own strength. And again, because this is, I think, vital to our understanding of chapter eight, I wanna reread this quickly with you. Romans chapter seven, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what, am I, what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but the pract- I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me and the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And we said that this was Paul sounding very much like a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And his confessions here of this inner battle with indwelling sin in chapter seven was intended to set us up perfectly for chapter 8. And his point is very simple. The way to experience victory over indwelling sin or sin that dwells within us is relying on the power of the indwelling Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so Paul, if you will, likens the Holy Spirit to the hero coming to the rescue of those who are tired of being held captive by sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so in this chapter, Paul laid out a number of things that the Holy Spirit provides for us or produces in us, which we will learn about over the next few weeks as we walk our way through this this chapter. For, For instance, he empowers us to mortify sin. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. He grants us the assurance of salvation. He gives us hope in the midst of suffering. He helps us when we pray. And ultimately, He is the guarantee of our eternal security. But for today, here in verses 1 through 11, I just want us to look at six blessings or benefits that the Holy Spirit provides for us or produces in us six blessings, six benefits that the Holy Spirit provides for us or produces in us as believers. Number one, he comforts us with the hope of the gospel. He comforts us with the hope of the gospel. Verse eight, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, did we not need to hear that after just coming out of Romans chapter seven and considering how we all battle with indwelling sin? When am I ever going to get over this stuff? Well, what an encouraging, hope-filled statement. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in the text of Scripture, it typically indicates that the writer is about to draw some sort of a conclusion or make some application based on what he just got done saying in the previous verses which I think is true in this case. However, I don't think Paul was just thinking about what he said in chapter seven. I think he was thinking of everything he'd said in the first seven chapters. That this therefore is a, is a big one. Um, it's not just, hey, look back at the last couple of verses of what he just said in the end of the, the previous chapter and, and therefore this. No, this is look back at everything he has said starting in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is the thrilling conclusion of justification by faith. Because the opposite of justification is what? Condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only other time the word condemnation is used in the New Testament is in chapter five um, when he was talking about the sin that we inherited from Adam. Chapter five, verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. And then in verse 18, so then as though as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so Paul, again, is is, is picking up some some threads um, of thought that he's been talking about for seven chapters now. And he's saying this, if, if we've been justified or declared righteous before God, we are no longer considered guilty before God, then we cannot and will not ever be punished for our sin by being condemned to death and hell for all eternity. That's what he means by there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is the ultimate hope of the gospel, is it not? And it's the Holy Spirit who who loves to remind us of that and comfort us with that particularly when we're battling self-condemnation. Anybody struggle with self-condemnation? You, you, you live guilt-ridden? You, you feel guilty for sins that maybe you've committed in the past? Well, as we're about to see here in verse 3, Christ was condemned by God on the cross. He was punished in our place for every sin we ever committed or ever will commit. In other words, the penalty for our sin has been paid for once and for all. And so consequently, God cannot and will not hold any of our sins, past, present, or future against us. You familiar with the legal term double jeopardy? That you can't be punished for the same crime twice? The point is, Christ was already punished for our crime, and it would be unjust for God to punish us a second time for the same crime. What's more is Christ's righteousness has been imputed or credited to us, our spiritual account, and no sin that we ever commit can reverse that divine legal transaction, So if you're a Christian, you will never be condemned to hell for your sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you may not suffer the consequences of your sin or be disciplined by God for your sin. Galatians 6, 6, 7 says that, that, that God is not mocked. A man, what? Reaps what he sows. And then, of course, there's that great section in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, that talks about how God disciplines those children that he loves. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. And so it's not like, well, I can just go off and do anything I want now because I will never face any kind of condemnation. Well, Condemnation and consequences are two different things. And uh, we still need to live in light of God wanting us to not sin and please Him with our lives. But the good news of the gospel is this, that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sin. And not just our sin, but even the guilt of our sin. I love that uh, David prayed in Psalm 32, 5, the blessedness of forgiveness. This was after he had committed adultery and murder and he had finally, after covering his sin for over a year, um, he finally confessed it and it says that God forgave even the guilt of his sin. In other words, there's no need for you to harbor any guilt or shame for sins that you've confessed and for which you've been forgiven. That's good news, isn't it? That's the hope of the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit who reminds us of that truth. In fact, this statement in verse one really serves as the foundation for what Paul will say later in this chapter. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And so there will be times when our consciences may accuse us or Satan may bring a charge against us but that's what we need to remember. We have an advocate with the Father. And John talks about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's justice, satisfied God's wrath. It's been dealt with, and now he serves as our advocate. And so no one, not even Satan himself, can bring an accusation or a condemnation uh, against us in the presence of God. And so first of all, the Holy Spirit reminds us or comforts us with the hope of the gospel. Secondly, the Holy Spirit delivers us from sin and death. The Holy Spirit delivers us from sin and death. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this law of the spirit of life, or excuse me, the the law of sin and death is what Paul just got done describing in chapter seven, which was a culmination of everything we've learned so far here, that that we are all sinners, and sin produces or results in death, being separated from God forever in hell, for what? We all, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. But he says, those who are in Christ, notice for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That phrase, in Christ, is fundamental to Paul's entire theology. He mentioned it all over in his epistles, all over, in all of his letters. But it simply means being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in this case, because we've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we learned about that in chapter six, we have been released from bondage to sin and its penalty of death. He says, For what the flesh could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, in other words, a law could never get people to fulfill its requirements. It could only condemn people. It couldn't save people. And the trouble was not with the law. It's not that the law is bad or deficient. We, we, we um, learned that in chapter seven. Paul was making sure that uh, the Jews that he was writing to uh, in the church in Rome didn't uh, accuse him of being antinomian or anti-law. He said, no, the law is a good thing. The problem was with us, our fallen humanity. We had no strength or ability to obey the law. All it did was tell us what to do, but it gave us no power or strength to do it. And so what the law could not do and what our flesh could not do, notice verse three, God did. And how did he do it? He did it by sending Jesus to earth to become a man and offer himself as a sacrifice for mankind's sins. Now notice the phrase there, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. I think Paul carefully chose that phrase to clarify that Jesus actually became a real man. But at the same time, he didn't have a sin nature like us. We know the Bible is very clear that while Jesus was tempted in all ways, like us, he was yet without sin. First uh, Peter chapter two, verse twenty two, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. First John three, five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Paul wanted to make it clear hey, he was a real man but he didn't have that sinful bent or that sinful nature that all of us have. And it says he condemns sin in the flesh. There at the end of verse three. In other words, the sinless son of God bore God's condemnation for our sin in his body on the cross. And he died not just for what we've done, but for who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God. So the Holy Spirit delivers us from sin and death. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit enables us to obey God's law. He enables us to obey God's law. Notice verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we mentioned this in previous messages that Jesus not only died to pay the penalty for us breaking the law, right? We deserve to die and be punished because we broke God's law. But not only did he die to pay the penalty for us breaking the law, but he also lived to keep or fulfill the law on our behalf. And so this is referred to as the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ, right? The passive obedience was him dying on the cross. The active obedience was him living his life in our place. So he not only died our death on the cross, he lived our life in our place. There's a reason why Jesus didn't just show up on a Friday night, right, just, 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 quick trip from heaven to earth, Friday night, gets crucified, spends a few days in the grave, and then resurrection goes back to heaven. Why? Because there was part of his ministry was to fulfill the law in our place. And so consequently, because he lived perfectly, lived out perfectly the law in our place, we cannot be condemned for violating the law. Because we are credited with keeping the law. What he did, what he accomplished, is credited to our account, and we are now enabled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's moral standards. You say, well, wait a minute. I didn't think we needed to worry about the law anymore. I mean, we're saved, so forget the law. Well, just because we're saved doesn't mean God no longer expects us to Love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, which was the, what? The summary or fulfillment of the entire law. Someone said it this way, God does not free men from their sin in order for them to do as they please, but to do as he pleases. And so we need to understand the, the, the function of the law and, and in regards to our salvation and our sanctification or our justification, our sanctification. So the law points us to Christ for our justification, and then Christ points us back to the law for our sanctification. In other words, to show us how to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. And I'm talking about the moral requirements of law. I think that's what was on Paul's mind here, capital L, the law here. He was thinking about the moral requirements of law, not the ceremonial requirements, civil requirements, the Old Testament, dietary laws and governmental laws. He's talking about the moral laws of God. In other words, the, the the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which still reflect the character of God and his will for his creatures. And so the Ten Commandments, if you will, help guide us as Christians in our striving after holiness. And so once we get saved, we would... We should no longer feel condemned by the law, but rather we should feel compelled to keep the law, not to earn a right standing before God, but out of love for Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is not something that we do in our own strength, but we do it by walking according to the Spirit. That phrase, walk there, walking According to the Spirit, the walk refers to our, the way we live our lives, our lifestyle. It's the habits of acting and talking and thinking that characterize our lives. And so just to summarize, really, verses 2, 3, and 4, the provision for our deliverance from the power of sin is through the death of Christ. But experiencing that deliverance on a daily basis comes through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. There's an old saying that goes like this To run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet or hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us wings and empowers us to keep the law. It's kind of like Red Bull. Red Bull gives you wings, right? Well, what's the point? It, it, it energizes you. It's this energy It energizes you and, and makes you feel like you can fly. And so people jump off cliffs you know, with their wingsuits and things like that after they drink a Red Bull. And the little phrase is, no Red Bull, no wings. Well, no Holy Spirit, no wings. You, you don't have wings. You don't have the ability. You don't have the energy to live out the law and to obey the law in order to please Christ. And so the Holy Spirit enables us to obey God's law. Number four, the Holy Spirit changes our dispositions and inclinations. The Holy Spirit changes our dispositions and inclinations. And in these next four verses, verses five, six, seven, and eight, Paul contrasted the disposition and inclinations of an unbeliever with the disposition and inclinations of a believer. Now, if there's any question in your mind this morning, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're going to find out really fast by comparing yourself to what's here in these four verses. Notice what he says here. For those who are according to the flesh, in other words, are living in the flesh, they don't have the Spirit of God in them, they're unbelievers, set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, the basic disposition of unbelievers is to satisfy their flesh, their fleshly desires, to obey the impulses of their unredeemed bodies, to live, they live to gratify their sinful cravings. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, in other words, the inclination of believers is to live for eternal things. You set your affections and you spend your energies on spiritual things which are pleasing to God. It's all about the word. It's all about prayer. It's all about church. It's all about worship and service and evangelism. So ask yourself the question, is your life all about you or is it all about Christ? That's a pretty clear way to know whether or not you're saved. He goes on to say, for the mind, verse 6, set on the flesh is death. Those who are focused on the flesh, those who are inclined toward the flesh, demonstrate that they are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul said, for we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we were completely unresponsive to God and his word. Completely insensitive to any work of the Spirit in our lives. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Those who are focused on the Spirit and inclined to honor and obey God prove that they've been regenerated and reconciled to God. They've been made alive with Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse five. Those of us who are dead in our trespasses have been made alive with Christ. Romans 5.1, you can just turn back a page. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're a believer, you you have peace with God. You've been reconciled to God. But notice verse seven, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Unbelievers, on the other hand, are enemies of God. It says that in chapter five, verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated, separated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's a description again of an unbeliever. You're at war with God, don't want anything to do with God. Why is it? For it does not subject itself to the law of God. In other words, the the mind of an unbeliever does not submit itself to God and his will. They, They just want to do their own thing. They don't want to do God's will. They don't care about God's will for their life. They want to be their own master. They're not about to submit to God. In fact, even if they wanted to, they couldn't. Notice for it is not even able to do so. So an unbeliever is in a pickle, and particularly because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. First Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, as opposed to a spiritual man, a natural man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And as a result, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's absolutely nothing that an unbeliever can do to please God. No matter how religious or moral you may think you are, or someone may appear to you to be, all your good deeds, all your acts of sacrifice, your charitable gifts are like filthy rags in the eyes of God, according to Isaiah 64, verse 6. There's nothing you can do in and of yourselves to make yourself or to get right with God or earn a right standing before God. The good news is that the Holy Spirit changes our disposition and inclination. And if you find yourself inclined to obey and honor the Lord, that's something that the Spirit of God did in you and is continuing to do in you. He's changing your disposition and if you're like, I don't know, that kind of describes me as somebody that just really doesn't care about the things of the Lord, well, you need to cry out to God to send his Holy Spirit to change your disposition and change your inclinations. But he has the power to do that. And number five, the Holy Spirit confirms that we belong to Christ. Number five, the Holy Spirit confirms that we belong to Christ. Look at verse nine. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Again, God has, by his spirit, has, has transformed you. You're no longer in the flesh, but now you're in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Again, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, if you are born again, You have the Spirit. You live in the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in you. How do we know that? Well, because the Bible teaches that that the moment a person repents and believes in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life and begins producing the fruit of repentance in our lives. And you're saying, well, what does that look like? Well... Galatians 5, and 23, the classic text about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I was getting mixed up at the end there. Ends with self control, I know that. Right? These are the things, right, that, that the Holy Spirit should be uh, producing in your life. And so these are the things that you look for that give you confidence. Evidence, confidence that that you are truly saved and if you don't see these fruits being produced in you it's, it's a pretty simple conclusion that means the Spirit of God's not in you because in order for those things to be a reality in your life, you must have the Spirit of God in you. I was talking to somebody one time who was really wrestling with whether or not they were saved and doubting their salvation. And I said, hey, listen, let's just be simple here. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? No? Well, then that means the Spirit of God isn't in you and you're not saved. That, that's a good conclusion to draw. That's helpful. Instead of sitting on the fence and trying to wonder, oh, I'm not sure. And, and it was like this, this individual was beating themselves up because they weren't you know, being who God wanted them to be and they were trying really hard to do the right thing. And, and, and I was like, hey, stop beating yourself up. The reason why you can't do all those things is because you can't do all those things. You, you're proving that you lack what you need and that is the Holy Spirit in you. So get saved. Repent and believe, right? And then you'll have the Holy Spirit who will empower you and enable you to do to live the life that you're trying so hard to live in your own strength. He says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So in other words, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. How do you know who's saved and who's not saved? Who has the Holy Spirit in them? James Montgomery Boyce said this, if we are not living a new life in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is not simply that we are unfulfilled or defeated Christians. He says, we're not Christians at all. Many of us are not living by the Spirit. Many of us who are not living by the Spirit need to awaken to the fact that we're not truly Christians. It's essentially what I was trying to help that individual understand. John MacArthur writes this, the person who gives no evidence of the presence, power and fruit of God's Spirit in his life has no legitimate claim to Christ as Savior and Lord. The person who demonstrates no desire for the things of God and has no inclination to avoid sin or passion to please God is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus does not belong to Christ. Again, do you demonstrate a desire for the things of God? Do you have an inclination to avoid sin? Do you have a passion to please God? Right? That's evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your life. Lastly, number 6. The Holy Spirit animates and resurrects our mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit animates and resurrects our mortal bodies verse 10. If Christ is in you through the bo- though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Even though the effects of sin are at work in our bodies, and we will ultimately die as a result of sin unless the Lord returns first, right? We're we're all dying right now. Why? Because we're sinners. And it's, it's the effects of sin on our world and on our bodies. Yet, we are spiritually alive due to Christ's imputed righteousness, but there's even something better to look forward to. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I almost thought about punting the Lamb of God message last Sunday and just preaching this text because I saw this little teaser here about the resurrection, right? This should... Bring our mind back to last Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit was the divine agent responsible for raising Jesus from the dead. And if he lives in you, that guarantees you that he will also raise you from the dead and give you a glorified body just like he did, just like he gave the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who will bring to fruition the last step, the final step of our salvation, right? We talk about salvation, three steps, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so this is what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit is the one who will bring that to pass. you think the Holy Spirit is an important person that we should know about, that we should appreciate? You may have noticed as he went through These first 11 verses, there wasn't a whole lot of exhortation. There wasn't a whole lot of commands. There wasn't a whole lot of me saying, hey, now you got to do this, and now you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. All Verses 1 through 11 is in what's called the indicative mood, as opposed to the imperative mood or tense. In other words, it was instruction This is instruction. It's not exhortation. It's instruction. In other words, Paul began this chapter by simply explaining doctrinal truths about the Holy Spirit that are crucial for us to know as Christians. There's nothing for us to do, there's no commands to obey. But that changes in verse 12. And next week, we're going to find out how the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit should be practically applied to our lives, particularly in regards to indwelling sin. And so come back next Sunday, ready to roll up your sleeves and Get to work in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Not in your own strength. But for now, I think the Spirit of God would just have us revel in these blessings and in these benefits that He's provided for us and that He produces in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how sometimes it's just good to just be instructed and not necessarily exhorted or commanded to do anything, but just to to sit and to learn and to to soak in truth and to be equipped, Father, with the knowledge that that we need to have, to to know what we need to know so we can be who you want us to be. And so thank you for this refreshing uh, section of Romans. And I pray as we transition next week into uh, what we need to do about it, uh, Lord, that you would... Help us to do all that we do, uh, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide us by the Spirit, by your Spirit who lives within us. I pray you'd bless the discussions that go on today and later this week um, um, regarding this message and this text, and uh, that uh, even as we seek to uh, apply it and meditate on it and apply it, Lord, that you would use one another to help us to really uh, put this deep into our minds and our hearts so it can work its way out in our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.